Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, and welcome to the Inside the Board Step 1 Study Smarter series. My name is Stuart Bryant, and I'm one of the co-founders and host of the Inside the Boards platform. Today we're going to be doing an episode which is part of our Crush Step 1 episodes for the Study Smarter series. The episode today will be an excerpt from the embryology chapter of Crush Step 1, and it's going to cover the first four weeks of embryologic development. Look for another episode this week on embryology uh, as I do a question to section later in the week. Also, don't forget about our practice question rounds, which happen every weekend, and cover general topics that'll help you prepare for the boards. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy. Day zero. Fertilization occurs when a sperm enters the egg, usually in the ampulla of the fallopian tube. The acrosome reaction occurs when a sperm meets the egg and releases enzymes that penetrate the zona pellucida the outer shell of the egg. Day 1. The single-cell zygote undergoes rapid mitotic cell divisions. Recall that the egg initially was arrested in metaphase 2 after ovulation, but completes this division only after fertilization. See chapter 16. There is no time for cell growth during this rapid dividing phase, so it is termed cleavage because the cells are cleaved into more numerous but smaller cells. Each cleavage doubles the cell number as each individual cell participates. Day 3. After there are 16 or 32 cells, it is now termed a morula, Latin for mulberry, because there are now many cells resembling a berry. Days 4 to 5. Sodium-potassium ATPase pumps deliver sodium into the interior of the morula, creating an osmotic gradient and subsequently forming a fluid-filled cavity inside the morula. The embryoblast cells, inside in a cluster, and the trophoblast cells, outside, are now distinct. Altogether, this is called the blastocyst. As can be seen in figure 4.2, the embryonic pole is the portion of the blastocyst in which the embryoblast cells are located. The embryoblast will go on to make the embryo, as expected, subsequently separating into the epiblast dorsal and hypoblast ventral. The trophoblast will eventually make the placenta, including the cytotrophoblast and the syncytiotrophoblast. Day 6 the blastocyst implants into the endometrium. If this implantation occurs in an abnormal location, for example the fallopian tube, it is termed an ectopic pregnancy, which is a medical emergency. Refer to figure 4.2 for a schematic that illustrates the fertilization of an egg and its eventual implantation. Twinning. Understanding twinning can be confusing because twinning is described in terms of the number of zygotes, monozygotic or dizygotic, the number of chorions, monochorionic or dichorionic, and the number of amnions, monoamnionic 
or diamniotic. The zygote part is easy. Recall that a zygote is made when an egg and sperm combine. Therefore, when twins arise from one egg and one sperm, they are considered monozygotic. If two eggs were each fertilized by an individual sperm, the twins would be considered dizygotic. The chorion refers to a membrane that is formed by structures including both trophoblastic layers, cyto- and syncytiotrophoblast, and will eventually form the placenta. Therefore, monochorionic twins will share a placenta. The amnion refers to the amniotic sac. Those that are monoamniotic will not be separated from one another, meaning they share the same pool of amniotic fluid, and could potentially be conjoined. Because dizygotic twins are formed from two different eggs and two different sperm, they are not genetically identical and are called fraternal twins. All dizygotic twins, therefore, have their own placenta, dichorionic, and amniotic sac, diamniotic, and they each develop in the normal fashion independent of one another. They are simply two pregnancies simultaneously. The case with monozygotic twins can be more complicated. Refer to figure 4.3 for a diagram showing different shared structures in twinning. Monozygotic twins occur when a single zygote splits and forms two embryos. They are termed identical twins because each forms from the same zygote and therefore they have the same genetic makeup. However, Depending on how early the split occurs, they may or may not share a chorion or amnion. The later the embryo splits, the more structures will be shared. Imagine that the zygote had immediately split, that it had not started to form any structures yet, and therefore each could do so on its own, such as in dichorionic or diamniotic cases. If the split occurred later, structures would have already begun to form and therefore must be shared. The important landmarks to remember are that the chorion will form at day 3 and the amnion will form at day 8. Splits that occur after these landmarks will share those structures. Remember that all of the following examples are only applicable to monozygotic twins. Dichorionic, diamniotic the split must have occurred before day 3 to have two separate chorions. Because the amnion forms after the chorion, if the twin is dichorionic, it must also be diamniotic. Therefore, these monozygotic twins will not share a placenta, dichorionic, nor will they share the same amniotic fluid sac, diamniotic. Monochorionic, diamniotic. The split must have occurred between days 3 and 8 because the chorion has formed and is therefore shared, but the amnion has not. These fetuses, therefore, share a single placenta, monochorionic, but each has its own amniotic fluid sac, diamniotic, and they are spatially separated from one another. Monochorionic, monoamniotic. The split must have occurred after day 8 because both structures are shared. Therefore, these fetuses will share a placenta, monochorionic, 
and amniotic fluid sac, monoamniotic, and will potentially be conjoined if the split was late enough. There is also a phenomenon called twin-twin transfusion syndrome that only occurs in monochorionic monoamniotic twins in which, because of placental anastomoses, one twin gets proportionally more blood than the other. This leads to a large twin that got most of the blood and a small twin that got less of the blood. It is usually a fatal condition for both twins. The second week, the rule of twos. The trophoblast, which will give rise to the placenta, has now differentiated into two layers, the cytotrophoblast, cellular, and the syncytiotrophoblast, a syncytium in which the cells have fused together. The cytotrophoblast divides through mitotic division and will generate the chorionic villi. This has embryogenic importance because it allows maximal surface area of contact with maternal blood in the placenta. It also has clinical importance because chorionic villus sampling is a method to diagnose chromosomal or genetic disorders in the fetus. The syncytiotrophoblast does not divide through mitotic division. This generates human chorionic gonadotropin, HCG, which is used clinically. The beta subunit, beta HCG, is the substance that pregnancy tests detect. It is also important in the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy, see chapter 16. The embryoblast, which will give rise to the embryo, has now differentiated into two layers, the epiblast, dorsal structures, and the hypoblast, ventral structures. Together, the epiblast and hypoblast are known as the bilaminar disc. There are also two cavities now, the amniotic cavity formed from the epiblast cells and the yolk sac formed from the hypoblast cells. Refer to figure 4.4 for an illustration of the status of the embryo by the beginning of the second week. Lastly, at about day 10, the syncytiotrophoblast will begin to secrete HCG. As mentioned previously, beta-HCG is used clinically to detect pregnancy and assess for an ectopic pregnancy as well. Because ovulation occurs 14 days before menses, by the time a patient is supposed to have menses, the pregnancy test should be accurate. Dipstick pregnancy tests are qualitative, meaning positive or negative, no numerical values. Blood tests can be quantitative, meaning they give an actual value. In early pregnancy, the beta-HCG should double every 48 hours. This is used as a benchmark to determine whether an ectopic pregnancy is potentially present. This is because the syncytiotrophoblast, if not implanted into the endometrium and implanted elsewhere, such as in the fallopian tube, would not have enough blood supply to increase the beta-HCG twofold in 48 hours. This suggests an ectopic pregnancy or other non-viable pregnancy. Please refer to figure 4.5 for a summary of embryogenesis thus far. The third week, gastrulation and the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm. The third week has the rule of threes, 
three germ layers after gastrulation. Gastrulation is the important step that produces the three germ layers, the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm. Understanding the ectoderm, endoderm, and mesoderm and the organs they produce is helpful in understanding organogenesis and even development. This concept also becomes important in adult life because malignancies of tissues derived from the mesoderm, muscle or bone, are termed sarcomas, such as myosarcomas and osteosarcomas respectively, whereas malignancies of tissues derived from ectoderm or endoderm are termed carcinomas. The process of gastrulation begins with the formation of a primitive streak, which is essentially just a midline invagination. Subsequently, the epiblast cells migrate through the primitive streak. The bottommost layer becomes endoderm, the middle layer becomes mesoderm, and the top layer of epiblast cells that did not migrate becomes ectoderm. These three germ layers will eventually give rise to various parts of the developing embryo. Figure 4.6 illustrates the process of gastrulation beginning with the formation of the primitive streak and eventual epiblast inward migration. Ectoderm The ectoderm consists of surface ectoderm, neuroectoderm, and neural crest cells. Surface ectoderm makes the surface layer of many organs including the epidermis of the skin as well as sensory organ structures such as the olfactory epithelium and epithelium of the mouth. It also makes glandular structures such as the adenohypophysis which itself is an outpouching of the roof of the mouth known as Rathke pouch and other glands including the mammary, sweat, and salivary glands. Neuroectoderm makes neural structures, essentially, all central nervous system structures such as the brain and spinal cord, but also the retina because the retina is neural tissue. Neural crest cells. The neural crest cells create essentially all peripheral nervous system structures. This also includes melanocytes, parafollicular C cells of the thyroid, and chromaffin cells of the adrenal medulla, which become important in melanoma, medullary thyroid carcinoma, and pheochromocytoma, respectively. Neural crest cells also play an important role in the formation of conotruncal endocardial cushions, which are essential for the proper development of the heart. Genetic disorders that involve problems in neural crest cell migration are often associated with cardiac abnormalities. Lastly, many structures in the face, including teeth and bony structures, are derived from neural crest cells. Therefore, conditions such as DeGeorge syndrome involve both craniofacial abnormalities and cardiac defects. Endoderm The endoderm is mainly responsible for developing into structures of the gut, such as the liver, pancreas, and other organs of or relating to the gastrointestinal system, and some endocrine glands such as the thyroid follicles and parathyroid glands. Mesoderm The mesoderm further separates into sclerotome, myotome, and dermatome, 
which develop into bone, muscle, and skin structures, respectively. Although the skin is mostly of mesodermal origin, the epidermis is derived from surface ectoderm. The rule of threes for week three also encompasses the formation of three body axes. The cranial caudal axis, the primitive streak is organized top to bottom, head to rump. The medial lateral axis, because the primitive streak is midline, and the dorsal-ventral axis, front to back. The end of the third week also marks the beginning of the embryonic period, during which organs begin to form. Before the end of the third week, teratogens typically have an all-or-nothing phenomenon, causing natural abortion of the embryo or no harm at all. There is nothing in between, such as birth defects. However, starting in the next week, with organogenesis, teratogens can cause errors in formation and lead to significant birth defects. The fourth week, neural tube closure and beginning of organogenesis. Week four also marks the rule of fours as organogenesis begins to take place. Four limb buds begin to grow. Four chambers of the heart have developed and begin to beat. The heart begins to beat at 22 or 23 days, when it has grown to such a size that it cannot get adequate nutrition by diffusion alone. Although the third week marked the beginning of neural plate development, which will give rise to the spinal cord, the fourth week marks the closure of the neural tube. This closure can be normal or abnormal. Abnormal cranial closure leads to anencephaly whereas abnormal caudal closure leads to spina bifida in one of its three main forms. Anencephaly occurs when the cranial head end of the neural tube does not close and leads to an absence of the forebrain and therefore is not compatible with life. Most patients with anencephaly die in utero or within hours to days of birth. Because there is no forebrain, there is no possibility to generate conscious thought, but because the brainstem is developed normally, primitive reflexes may be present. Spina bifida occurs when the caudal bottom end of the neural tube does not close, usually near the L5 to S1 area. This incomplete closure can lead to malformation of the vertebra overlying the spinal cord and to a passageway for the spinal cord to protrude out of the back. The severity of the defect is related to the size of the opening. This can result in a spectrum of disease ranging from completely asymptomatic to permanent paralysis. Spina bifida occulta. This defect usually does not have symptoms or signs because the incomplete closure is so minor that the spinal cord cannot protrude out of the defect. Occulta is Latin for hidden. However, some common findings include a small tuft of hair or hyperpigmented skin over the affected area at the midline. Because there is a small vertebral fusion defect, this can be seen on lumbar spine radiographs. Spina bifida with meningocele. A meningocele occurs when the meninges, the three layers, dura matter, arachnoid matter, and pia matter, that surround the spinal cord, protrude through a defect in the vertebra, but the spinal cord does not protrude. 
Therefore, the chance of neurologic dysfunction is still relatively low. A meningeal cyst, a sac filled with cerebrospinal fluid, may be visible at the site of the defect. Spina bifida with myelomeningocele. In this severe form, the defect is large enough that the spinal cord and meninges both protrude through the vertebral defect and are damaged. This leads to neurologic problems below the level of the core damage, typically resulting in paralysis and loss of sensation in the legs. This is associated with other structural neurologic defects such as Dandy-Walker syndrome and Chiari II malformations. Refer to figure 4.7 for illustrations of the different types of spina bifida. Folate deficiency increases the risk for the previously mentioned neural tube closure defects. Because the neural tube closes by the fourth week before many women even know they are pregnant, folate supplementation in women of reproductive age, especially during the prenatal period, is important in preventing both anencephaly and spina bifida. Anencephaly, myelomeningocele, and meningocele but not spina bifida occulta, can be suspected in utero if high levels of alpha-fetoprotein, fetal albumin, are detected in maternal serum. This laboratory finding makes sense because alpha-fetoprotein will diffuse into the amnion. Polyhydramnios, excess amniotic fluid, may also be present as CSF leaks into the amnion through the defect. Alright, that wraps things up. Thanks again for listening to the episode today. Check back later this week for our episode on a embryology question dissection, and then later this weekend for a practice question rounds uh, courtesy of Stat Pearls. If you haven't, please subscribe and rate the podcast. It's a big help for us. As always, the best place for you to access all of our content is through the Inside the Boards app. It's available on iOS and Android. It's free to use and includes the podcast. And you can get a subscription and then use the All Audio QBank as well. The Study Smarter series has been going on for a couple years and we've decided to take the content and boil it down into nice, succinct podcast playlist that we're uploading to the application. We're hoping that these make the listening experience even easier for you to use. As always, like us on Facebook, and if you have the opportunity, share us with a friend who's studying for the boards as it may really help them. And as always, happy studying! Happy studying!